Hello, Lewis fans, and welcome to the Mirror C.S. Lewis podcast. My name is Thornton. And my name is Andrew. We're two brothers who enjoy C.S. Lewis and want to take themselves and others on a journey through his writings. So, Andrew, I know it has been a minute since we recorded our last podcast in, in June, and so I uh, appreciate all of our patient, patient listeners uh, while we prepared uh, to get this one out the door. Yeah, it's been kind of a hectic few few uh, months for me. Summer is always, uh, you know, pretty busy, but um, it's been good. I'm glad to be back. Glad to get back into it. Yeah, I was thinking we are sort of like the George R. R. Martin of C.S. Lewis podcasts. Uh, take forever, and then does that mean we're not going to do the final one? Well, I guess hopefully we can supersede him in, in that respect. But uh, yeah, it sort of yeah, takes us uh, forever to get this one out the door, and hopefully it's worth the wait for everyone. And then eventually they'll make a TV show about it, and then ruin it in the final season. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So yeah, just like that. Uh, that crossover Avenger style uh, inkling movie you suggest a, a few episodes ago. Yeah, and then you and I can be the surprise reveal at the end. <laughs> I like who. Do, who do you want to play you? Oh, I, I, I don't know if they can pay anyone enough to to do that. Um, and so I guess it I is know. that prestigious. Uh, you're too kind. You're too kind. I know. I just uh, that is a, a fun icebreaker question. Who do you want? Who do you want to play you? I've always been told. I look like, or Shia LaBeouf, Shia yeah. LaBeouf looks like me. A hundred percent, especially in the greatest game ever played. Especially yeah. in that movie, he looked like you. Um, for me, it'd have to either be Zac Efron mm-hmm. or um, just based on looks alone, mm-hmm. either Zac Efron or Chris Hemsworth. Mm-hmm. But I, given the budget, probably Ben Savage. <laughs> very nice yeah yeah i like uh i think as i maybe mentioned in the most reluctant convert review episode i uh really have an affinity for nicholas ralph the guy who played c.s lewis in that film yeah uh, he did well and he did and uh, i've enjoyed watching him in all creatures great and small so i yeah i think it'd be fun to see him try and pull off uh, an american accent could be interesting yeah. Well, Andrew, I don't know if you've heard, but there has been some headline breaking news, and I, maybe not breaking news, I guess it's it's a little old, but there's been some big news in the C.S. Lewis world. Let's hear it. So, because I just speaking of most reluctant convert, they are going to make some more movies about C.S. Lewis's life, and over the next couple of years. So, yeah, the same company, the Fellowship for Performing Arts, and yeah, they're going to make some uh, more focusing on, on different different portions of his of his life in conversion. Interesting. Will it be the same style? I guess that's a great question. I think uh, I don't know. It'll be see. I don't know if they're going to adjust things based off feedback or or what they're going to do. Um, I wonder if it would be uh, like just a converted play, or if they're going to actually make it more of a narrative movie. Yeah, well, I, I don't think. There's no plays about him already, so I don't think they're going to convert a play. I guess they're going to have to write it from scratch, per se. Well, um, I mean, maybe I'm just, you know, uh, saying it incorrectly, but wasn't the most reluctant convert, wasn't that like a stage performance that was yep. converted to a movie? Exactly, yep. Yeah, okay, so when I said play, that's kind of what I meant, more stage uh, Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, so yeah, is, well, yeah, exactly, yeah, the, the, the additional movies they're planning on making are not plays already, oh, okay. so they're not, yeah, there's nothing to convert. Oh, I see um, what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, per se, other than, like, Lewis already lived it. Um, 
So, yeah, uh, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. I know I tweeted out that I, I hope Nicholas Ralph reprises the role of um, Mr. Lewis and and uh, Max himself liked to tweet. So Ooh. there you go. From, uh, from, yeah, from my mouth to his ears. So Come on. Yeah. Uh, so that was one big news. So that's something to look forward over the next couple of years, and we will certainly be on, on the beat, if you will. Mm. Uh, but some more, I guess, speaking of plays, the the there is a play recently made about the horse and his boy oh. by uh, I think it's, yeah the Academy of Arts. It's a it's a, a theater in Greenville, South Carolina, and. So yeah, they they have uh, they just created and staged uh, the play last this past summer, summer of twenty twenty two, and it was really successful. So now it is coming up to the Museum of the Bible in Washington D.C., and I already have bought tickets uh, for it uh, next uh, next February, February twenty twenty three. So again, you uh, can come here for all the breaking news and 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 the whole C.S. Lewis adaptation beat so well okay go ahead and getting into the reflection on the songs i as we mentioned before it took us a while to get this episode out the door uh the book the reflection on the songs itself is relatively short especially compared to some of the other uh lewis works like uh miracles and right and and i think it's maybe a little bit shorter than mere christianity but not not that much shorter, but uh, it just yeah. Uh, so a lot of things to process, and um, but I guess I don't want to steal your thunder, Andrew. But if you want to go ahead and start off and give us some of the background and context, sure. Um, from when C.S. Lewis became a Christian, he started attending his parish church on Sundays and his college chapel on weekdays. Being an Anglican, um, he heard all 150 psalms recited monthly during morning and evening songs, or morning and evening prayers. This experience in his own Bible reading led Lewis to almost know the Psalms by heart. Yeah, he began writing his reflections in the autumn of 1957, and the book was published a year later in September 1958. After publication, the Archbishop of Canterbury asked Lewis to join the committee to revise the Psalter. Yeah, and he was writing this at his happiest. Um, Him and Joy were married fully married by this point and enjoyed kind of a brief respite from from her cancer Uh, she had helped him organize and write his reflections um, as well as the four loves so yeah andrew i was doing some additional research uh last night about this period and found out that while while he was very happy during this time there was some bumps in the road if you will yeah uh joy's uh ex-husband uh, her her children's father was trying to i guess get back in their life and and he had uh, abused them pretty severely so lewis mm. was uh burying his teeth to try and keep him away and and it apparently worked uh but there was yeah so so while happy while this was a happy time there were some like i said bumps in the road so it's interesting to see how his life at this time really reflected the psalms sure. with uh yeah with yeah with joy and anger and uh, even that the whole... judgment he, he kind of talks about. Yep, exactly. Yep. The book itself is dedicated to Austin and Catherine Ferrer. Forgive me if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. 
Austin was the chaplain of Trinity College, so through him, Lewis would probably heard many of the many of the songs. Austin and his wife Kay, as she was known, were Lewis and Joy's best couple friend, spending many a tea time together. So, um, yeah. So now we're going to go in and move into the the overview of the text. Good. Well. The, the book is short. It's coming in at about 161 pages, um, you know, given my copy, uh, consisting of 12 chapters. It's structured pretty similarly to Miracles, where the chapters can be read as independent essays. Uh, but Lewis does build a larger argument, or in this case, a larger reflection from one chapter to the next. The book isn't a work of scholarship, uh, just as uh, Lewis says, writing one amateur to another talking about difficulties he, Lewis, uh, have met or the light uh, he gained. And Lewis doesn't shy away from the hard parts of the songs, which I think you and I will are looking forward to getting into and, and discussing a little bit. Um, and his, yeah, his first four chapters deal with the judgments, cursings, and death mentioned in the songs. As far as judgment, Lewis points out that most of the psalms are, are not scared of judgment but ask the Lord to actually speed it up. Um, the authors rejoice in judgment. Like judgment is a, a really kind of a, a positive thing. And I, I, I'd like to touch on that a little bit later. Um, whereas Christians view God's judgment as sort of a criminal case where they're the defendant. And the Jewish picture is more of a civil case where they're the plaintiff. Uh, Lewis says that this reading of the Psalm supplements the Christian view. Yeah, and I, yeah, just we can go ahead and just pause or pause on that for a second. And I had never really, I'd never heard of that. And and I guess I had read the Psalms, and that and that part or that point never, I guess, uh, I never internalized that point. Right. And so yeah, so reading it from Lewis and just sort of seeing it for myself and my reading of the Psalms, it is an interesting switch. Uh, and it, yeah, not say any that the Christian view is is wrong or that the the Jewish view is wrong because uh, it's, well, it's I think all you scripture. have to have both, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like either one by itself is incomplete. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's so. It just I'm glad. Yeah, reading this as as a lot of reading Lewis is that he just opens up your eyes to something that you had not considered before, but is uh, an appropriate part of our our faith. And what's really interesting, just from an apologetic sense, is you know if you're if you're sharing your faith with someone, a lot of times you'll get the question, "Why would a good God send anyone to hell?" Mm. Right? But you know, I, I um, heard in some of my theology classes, you know, the prevailing question in apologetics, like for hundreds or thousands of years, wasn't that it was, "Why would God, a good God send anyone to heaven?" You know, that was the question that was asked for a long time. And what's really interesting is for hundreds and thousands of years, you know, like the world was really brutal. Mm -hmm. Not insane, it's not brutal today, but just, you know, especially in, you know, suburban America, like life is really easy comparatively to mm -hmm. the rest of human history. Mm -hmm. Right. And when, you know, you could get mauled by a bear, or die of cholera, or, you know, war, you know, raiding, you know, whether it's Vikings or, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Huns, whatever it is, right? Like death is at your door. You're seeing carnage often. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the idea of an evil world is really prevalent. Mm-hmm. Whereas today it's like, well, we're seeing, you know, you know, I can live till I'm, you know, in my mid eighties, pretty, you know, um, yeah, life expectancy, I think, for males is, I think, like, 71 or something, or maybe 67. It's, it's a, yeah, historically, yeah, uh, maybe not unprecedented, but it certainly, yeah, it has improved a lot over, over time. And I, and I have, outside of maybe, you know, some level of, um, you know, disease, right? If barring disease or maybe some freak accident. Like, I, I don't have to worry about the neighboring country going to war with us and then dying, yep. you know, on the front lines there. Yeah, yeah I think that's yeah, maybe peculiar to America. I think a lot of maybe other countries. For sure. The yeah. But and I, and I think but you're I think that being said, I think there the world is at much more peace today uh, in general. Obviously, there's some exceptions than, right. than in the past, but even putting aside like geopolitics, uh I, I love Lewis, Lewis's line in The Problem of Pain is that all, all of the major religions were, were founded, if you will, uh, when there was no uh, chloroform and, and no, right. no pain, no painkillers. Right, right, uh, right. So, yeah, cer- certainly to your point, there's, there's uh, a lot more convenience in this world. And, um, and, and I think in the, there's all, another point, or I think that, like, like you were saying that like in the past there, this, this, these Psalms resonated a lot more than maybe they do today. But after reading this, I've started finding myself just also saying like, Hey Lord, like this, this seems like wrong. Like this, this person wronged me. And I just, I don't know. I've been finding myself praying more in this vein of like, Lord, just please give me justice. Like give, um, I, yes, I know I have my own faults, and I try to be gracious and forgiving, and but like, come on, look, look, look at what happened here. Right, um, right. And so I, know, I just I feel like I've beforehand I would have those thoughts and then think like, okay, I'm just being selfish or I'm being priggish or like I like I have my own uh, faults, so I shouldn't fault them, which to some extent is true. Sure. Um, but it is sort of um, it is there does feel like there's a, a weight lifted to think like oh yeah like what they did was wrong and it was against me and that's not right right and i can i can go and appeal to the lord about that yeah and i i also think it's just i for at least for me and i am speaking about specifically a you know sub um suburban american context mm-hmm. and and you know if it's relevant at times, a, a white suburban American context. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, we, I'm not persecuted for being a Christian, mm-hmm. you know, like, and you gotta remember the Psalms are, are all written before the coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're written specifically from a Jewish mindset. And, the, you know, the Jews outside of, you know, like one, one or two reigns of kings were kind of bullied by the surrounding um, countries, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they were constantly, you know, under threat or under attack or actively, you know, oppressed and deported, um, you know, and exiled. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And, you know, the early church probably could really resonate with that because they were actively oppressed, exiled, you know, killed. And then we, we are still living under now, a lot of people would say we're on the back end of it. And, you know, that would be hard to argue, but or argue, argue against. But we're still under Christendom where Christianity is still very much in power. You know, we're, we're getting to a point where you might get made fun of for being a Christian. Um, but that's a, a very little price to pay in comparison to, um, you know, what David might have been going through actively being chased by Saul, you know, or mm-hmm. um, what the Israelites, you know, being deported to Babylon. Um, yeah. So it's like, you know, the these, and like I said, in a kind of comfortable suburban America, like it might be more difficult to resonate with the judgment in the Psalms. Um, and it, it can be probably a little bit easier to resonate with the, um, the parts of the Psalms where you're judging yourself, mm. you know? Yeah. Cool. Well, after all this judge, uh, judgment talk of loses, he then asks, what use can we make of the curses in the Psalms? For example, in, in Psalm 109, where David prays for his enemy to die so the children could be fatherless and the wife a widow. <laughs> um, we can't just ignore these curses or right. explain them away, uh, saying the Jews didn't know any better. Uh, the curses are intertwined with the, the quote-unquote good psalms, and the rest of the Old Testament is filled with antidotes uh, to hatred. So what do we, what do, we do with them? Well... Uh, his answer is twofold. First, it reflects and, and gives voice to ourselves. Uh, today, we might be more subtle in our hatred, but the difference is really only in degree and not particularly in type. Second, it gives us a window into those uh, we might have hurt or provoked um, in, into anger. Yeah. In this part, it reminded me of uh, Jesus's teaching on like, don't even if you look at a woman, you have committed adultery. Right. And, and those, those types of things where it's like, like, like Lewis says, it's not a, uh, it's only a matter of yeah, degree. Uh, and so I think it is, uh, yeah, I've always thought, and these Psalms have never been an issue for me because I've always thought like, this is not sanctioning those actions, but sure. Giving voice to a feeling. Um, right. Right. And, yep. Now, I guess, and it made me think that, like, okay, the these might be – the thing I was thinking about, though, that was different was maybe these are religious feelings and, like, how – what are – like, what's the difference between religious feelings and normal feelings? Right. Um, but, you know, I, I guess I, I need I've been, I haven't really thought to – I need to think more deeply about that, but – um. Yeah, yeah I, and I, I think also it's really important to re- to remember and distinguish um, the different relationship um, that we have due to Jesus coming now. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, um, the um, like we now can can look at someone and invite them into Christ. Whereas, you know, at that time, whoever the psalmist is, 
is like the the religion, the Judaic religion is very national. Um, and so you'd have to invite them to literally leave their homeland and join your nation. Now, not that, that there isn't uh, that idea of mm. self-denial in the New Testament, but like the, the you it's very difficult to se- se- excuse me separate the geopolitical from the religious in, in this context at least. Um, and, and so, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. Like, just because they're saying these things doesn't mean that, like, what they're saying should come to pass. What they're saying did come to pass, that God was saying, like, oh, yeah, great idea. Hadn't thought of that, mm-hmm. um, you know. Um, but at the same time, like, we now have an opportunity to take that one step further to feel those exact same feelings, right? But then let that turn into more of a compassion and mm-hmm. more of a praying for your enemies rather than praying against your enemies. Like Jesus then opens up that pathway, mm-hmm. um, which I, I believe is much more powerful and profound, but it's the same feeling. It's the same emotion. Yeah. Um, yeah we have, I guess a different um, way to sort of handle them now. Um, but, but I guess you're, you're allowed to have those feelings. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, listeners, we had to take a little pause. Um, my daughter woke up from her nap earlier than I thought she would. So if you, uh, hear her in the background, that is our, our third, uh, co-host that, uh, she'll, so she might be giving us her, her thoughts on, on the book, uh, periodically. So. But yeah, in uh, chapter 4, Lewis turns to death and afterlife in the Psalms. He gives examples of many Christians reading into the Old Testament a belief in the afterlife which doesn't exist. He explains and gives examples of how the Jews believed in Sheol, which was a place for the good and bad. This belief shifted by the time Jesus arrived, though. For example, see the Pharisees and Sadducees. Lewis says he's less concerned with how the shift occurred and more with the absence of such a belief in the midst of such intense religious feelings found in the Psalms. And this is something I'm still pondering because, yeah, the, the verses he recommend or he, um, he references, they, yeah, it's not the clear cut or the, it's not readily, it doesn't seem this quite the same as, what Christianity teaches today about the afterlife. And so, yeah, I've just been thinking about that. Like, okay, was there, is there some sort of deeper reality or is there some sort of, yeah, like Lewis suggested some sort of maturation in the belief. And I like Lewis's theory there uh, of why it might have changed over time. Um, But yeah, just the idea of it, of that doctrine gradually being revealed is something I've been wrestling with uh, more. What, what are your thoughts? This is, um, uh, so I really like that he included this because I think it, this was really important for me to see at least that mm-hmm. like I actually disagree pretty heavily with C.S. Lewis in a lot mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that to be a really good and healthy thing because mm-hmm. – for me, I can slip into kind of viewing the things he says as authoritative. Um, 
because he is so smart and, you know, he has so many good uh, thoughts and, and reflections that like, again, I can view his work as authoritative. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we do have to remember that he is Anglican and going to be taking this from an Anglican approach. And there are reasons I'm not Anglican, one of which is, you know, he believes in a purgatory. He even mentions it, um, I believe, a couple of times throughout the the different chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't find there to be any, I mean, the closest thing to a purgatory of sorts is the Jewish belief in Sheol, which I find to be pretty funny. Um, but the... The one really interesting thing just about afterlife in general is to have a really, uh, what's a a good word for it, robust belief of the afterlife. You're going to have to really take the Bible as a whole, you know, and um, because, you know, different, different times have really did mean you know, very different views, but at the same time, like Jesus himself makes a lot of different comments about the afterlife mm-hmm. um, and about how how things do change in that regard. Not just that mm-hmm. the belief changed, but that the reality changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was reading Revelation this morning, actually, and there are times where within the book of Revelation, the the how the afterlife is you know, operating changes, mm-hmm. um, and who's where changes, you know? So I do think that there is a dynamic and not, not necessarily a static, um, view here in that, you know, different times in history, such as when Jesus resurrected, things changed when he comes again, things will change even times in between that with, depending on how you view, you read the book of revelation, you know, things change and where the martyrs are versus everyone else, right? Like it's not just as complicated or not just as simple as saying, you know, believers go here and non-believers go there. And, you know, you know, and then it it all just gets sorted out like that. Like there's, it it does get a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. I, yeah, I've never really thought deeply about purgatory or, um, the, the Jewish belief in the afterlife, and I guess I I will start more. Um, I will, I, I know the Pints with Jack uh, podcast, another C.S. Lewis uh, podcast, uh, one of their hosts says that everyone everyone believes in purgatory. It's just a matter of the details. <laughs> and, and so I, I just thought that was funny, and, and uh, that has sort of stuck in my brain. And, and I guess a, a very quick rabbit hole, in the philosophy of religion Twitterverse, uh, there has been uh, some a question going around of where is heaven, and um, talking because well I'll I'll skip the, the background but I, that's just a question I've been reflecting on because Jesus ascended mm-hmm. and and he was in bodily form after he resurrected and then he ascended so where did he go. And I know it's easy just to sort of brush that question off and think that it's kind of stupid. Like heaven is like a, a spiritual place and it's invisible and I'm, I'm sure it kind of is. But then like, like, but then, like I said, Jesus had a, a real physical body. Mm-hmm. So then w- what happened to it? Um, 
And I think it's a very thought-provoking question, and it's not one that I've heard anyone talk about until the last month or so. Sure. Um, yeah, I do find that to be, I, I mean, in re- with the information that we're given, we're going to have to be satisfied with an I don't know. Mm-hmm. And if we get too yeah. confident in, in any other explanation, I would be very wary of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, I do think it's a question worth pondering. Um, and, you know, again, reading Revelation this morning, uh, John is seeing into heaven at, mm-hmm. at, you know, different times. Times he's looking at earth, but other times he is genuinely looking into heaven. So it's also like a place you can see into. Mm. you know so like it's not it's not so spiritual that like our senses aren't able to comprehend it yeah you know he's hearing and seeing things mm. yeah that's true and in gen i was in you were reading revelations recently i was reading genesis and there then, we go and it says yeah uh, as the famous line goes god made the heaven and the earth and so yeah that implies that they're both material places well, um, I'd be careful about I'd, that because I do think in that context, heavens is talking about like space and heavenly I, bodies. True, and I, I think that is, uh, yeah, I, yeah. With our language, it it's very flexible in that way. So yeah, I think it could mean that, and um, but I think you could potentially interpret it the other way. But um, but anyway, I think that's probably a good segue into what Lewis thought about this whole uh, issue of the afterlife. He thinks it's possible for men to be too concerned with the afterlife. A good example of that are the Egyptians. God did not want his chosen people to follow the example of the Egyptians, but really focus and properly place their focus on Jesus. Um, And once they did that, he could properly introduce the concept of an eternity with him or away from him, a heaven or a hell, you know, happiness or misery beyond death. Um, and, and, and those things are not really religious in and of themselves or even religious subjects at all. Yeah, that that's going back to the judgment part of what we were just talking about. That That's always been my thought or my, my personal answer to myself about why God, quote unquote, allows a, a hell or sends people to hell is is that it's. He, he, he lets people go where they want to go. It's if, if they want to spend an eternity with him, then, then that's heaven. But if they do not want to spend an eternity with him, then the absence of him is hell. All right. Uh, so that's always been my, my thought. And I know there's, there's, I know there's been uh, rebuttals and there, there's, you can go down a whole rabbit hole with that, but yeah, like, like you're saying that, there's happiness or misery beyond death being eternity with the Lord or eternity without him. Um, right. Well, yeah. I also think it's important because I, I mean, I agree with that. It is a, you, you, you get what you asked for type thing. Um, but it is still, or not, a pun- no, sorry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Go ahead. It, it is still a punishment. Um, and, you know, John Owen says it pretty well where you know if you commit a crime against an infinite god it is an infinite crime you know like the 
he is so holy and so righteous and so good that to commit a crime against him, especially with his supreme authority, is such an egregious crime that it deserves an infinite punishment. Um, you know, and he would not be taking himself seriously if he did not open the door to that infinite punishment. Mm. Um, so there is, you know, an element to that. There would probably be a lot of people that, that would say like, well, let me do what I want here. And then, yeah, I'd love to spend eternity with you. Mm. And, and God doesn't really open the door for that. Well, I, I would disagree. I think he kind of does. If you repent and you accept the Lord and uh, then he, he does. Uh, it's, you, you can spend a life of sin and then repent and accept him. Like that's obviously not um, the aim. And but if you like truly repent and accept the Lord, then all of that is washed away. Well, true, but I, and I think we're we're talking two different things at, at this yeah. point because I'm saying like that this idea of everyone who goes to hell doesn't want God. I would, I'd probably disagree with. Mm. Um, I think like there are probably a lot of people who like want God and this other thing too, and don't realize, or they do realize, but, but maybe try and convince themselves otherwise that they can have both. Um, you know, whereas like a good example is when, when Jesus says like, there will be people who, of the day of judgment be like hey god i prophesied on your behalf and jesus is like i don't know you mm. so i think that they're you know it, it's a bit more than just um you get what you asked for um due to that mm. interesting okay i'll have to think more on that good thing to think about yeah well continuing on Lewis continues his focus on this delight God wants to engender in himself in the next chapter. This is the delight which made David dance. He says the pious modern-day laborer and the ancient Jew had in common that their experience of music, feasting, and festivity, and God were one and the same. And the delight they had with the former was necessarily the same with the latter. And I do love, just as a quick comment, I do love that God commands us to party. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't know That's if we talked yeah, about... The Puri- yeah, that was something the Puritans have missed out on, because they thought that, like, oh, we don't have to have Christmas. We don't have to have right. these things. And I think that was to their discredit. Sure. And, and just, you know, like, a lot of the law is to honor the parties. Mm-hmm. Um, now I don't know if we talked about this last time and if you're listening, I'd encourage you to look it up. Um, I've done the, the Google searches myself, so I, this isn't without any, um, I guess research, but I heard that the, the Jews never actually honored the year of Jubilee where they released all their, you know, bond servants and slaves and stuff oh. like that, oh. that at no point in scripture did they ever actually honor it. Um, if they did, it's never mentioned in scripture, though there are a couple times where it's mentioned that they didn't. Um, so I'd be interested, or there, you know, there are some people who believe it never actually happened, or if it did, it, it you know, it went away very quickly. Mm. Um, but that it, it's really interesting to see how 
difficult um, the you know Israelites had, how much difficulty they had with partying. You know. Mm. No, it's interesting. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I guess if scripture doesn't say, it'd be interesting to see if if it ever happened in any other in history outside of the the scripture. Yeah. Um, yeah. That. Oh, interesting. I, I never thought of that either. Um, but you know, as Lewis says, uh, when the mind becomes capable of abstraction, thus able to separate the, the two, a wrist occurs where one can substitute the right for God himself. The right may take on a, a rebellious, cancerous life of its own. This abstraction occurred in Judaism where the Jews thought that temple worship was an end unto itself. But Psalm, Psalm 50 helps correct it. One verse. If I was hungry, do you think I would apply to you? Lewis says, the joy and delight in God, which meets us in the Psalms, is the living center of Judaism. Mm. In chapter 6, Lewis talks about another aspect of this delight, which at first, at first perplexed him. He found it bewildering the psalmist's delight in the Ten Commandments and complex legislation. How could the law be regarded as, quote, sweeter than honey? Lewis says in the psalmist's time and, and our own, the godly life is an island with rivals all around it, with the rival tides coming further up onto the beach. Many of, the, quote, ignore, many of them, quote, ignore individual rights, end quote. Our cruel give mortality a whole new meaning or ignore it altogether. The, quote, sweet reasonableness of the law provides an antidote to these rivals. Lewis says, though, the most filthy and cruel rival of all is the law stripped of righteousness. Jesus gave some of his sternest warnings to those who valued the law above the heart of God. This elitism or Priggery, as Lewis calls it, is a strain of the larger sin of pride and is what Lewis focuses on in chapter 7. Yeah, and that, that many Psalms say things that like they hate idolaters, hate God's enemies as if they were their enemy. Or in the case of Psalm 50, verse 18, God condemns someone not for being a thief, but consenting to a thief. Lewis says that this attitude leads us to, to the Pharisees, people who thought in the most pernicious way they were too good for others. Tameness towards evil and injustice is a problem too, Lewis says. So uh, how do we balance it? Well, we focus on the problem at a private level. Lewis asks, how ought we to behave in the presence of very bad people who are powerful, prosperous, and impenitent? He specifies that the bad... Uh, the bad people, because if the bad people are outcasts, poor, miserable, you know, whose wick wickedness obviously is not paid, then every Christian knows the answer. Yeah, this was, as far as, far as my own personal life, this is what I've hit me the hardest, or what has, I guess, lodged itself in my heart, is that, because yeah, I've had this thought, like, as I mentioned earlier, like, oh, that person did me an injustice, like, that is wrong like how like god like take care of this and this part reminded me like okay if if they're not prospering for their from their wickedness if to use a religion to use a bible term like they like it's they it all the 
it's just worse. They're worse off. It's worse for them. Like they're they're ones to be pitied and forgiven, um, especially especially. Uh, but then it's the interacting with the people who are prosperous that uh, that's when we encounter this danger. Yeah, yeah, and, and go ahead. I was just gonna say that it's almost better. Well, I would say it is better to not prosper for evil because, you know, it, it's much more, you, you, you don't think it works, right? You say, well, like this evil didn't work. And, mm-hmm. and I think you're, you're probably more apt to repent because you, you've seen the consequences of, of the actions, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas people who do prosper, it, it's sort of like a, not only do they have to give up the sin in and of itself, which is tough, but they have to give up the the prosperity that came along yeah. with it. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. And yeah, so these people who yeah prosper from from wrongdoing, yeah, they cease being the victim in a sense and become right. one of the tyrants. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lewis says that it's it's wise to avoid as much as one can those who are bullies, cruel, dishonest, etc. Not because we are too good for them, but because we're not good enough to mm-hmm. yeah to resist them and resist everything that all the trappings. We are not righteous or clever enough to cope with all the problems such society brings. Temptation is to con- to condone and to consent. Yeah, and if you're in in that kind of group, um, you know you can disagree without being a jerk, right? Um, if it's done, you know, argumentatively and not like dictatorially, uh, the best course of action, though, is to just avoid that type of company altogether. Um, it's not self-righteousness. It's really just, you know, practicality and prudence. Yeah. Chapter eight takes us in a different direction with uh, an analysis of the Psalms treatment of nature, nature with a capital N. Lewis starts off with two observations. First, the ancient Jews didn't have a concept of the, quote, countryside, as we do today, since cities were not really a thing. They were just, I don't know, mostly villages that were already in the country. Yet, they seemed to enjoy nature more than other people at the time. They, quote, enjoyed it almost as a vegetable might be supposed to enjoy it, end quote. Mm. Second, since uh, the one God created nature... The two are distinct, and the doctrine of creation seems peculiar to the ancient Jews. When other religions at the time had creation stories, they were not religiously important, or uh, they were they were on the periphery. An exception, Lewis points out, is Plato, who has a clear theology of creation in the Judaic and Christian sense. Mm. The result of these observations, Lewis continues, are one: nature is emptied of its divinity. Two, nature is a, quote, index, uh, a symbol, a manifestation. The, the 67th book of the Bible, is, as I've heard some people say. And third, nature is not mere data, but an achievement. And I, did, I just thought that was such a beautiful thought. As Psalm 33, 4 and 9 say, quote, All his works are faithful. He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Lewis then examines this praise in chapter 9. Why do we praise God? Why does he demand it? Why do we advocate for others to do so? Lewis says, 
For the same reason we need or are compelled to admire a beautiful painting or ask others to celebrate a sports team. Also, God communicates his will to us through our praise, and we naturally give praise, so we should give it to the source. I think Lewis's words about praising a painting are poignant. He says, quote, the sense in which the picture deserves or demands admiration is rather this, that admiration is the correct, adequate, or appropriate response to it, that if paid, admiration will not be thrown away, and that if we do not admire, we shall be stupid, insensible, and great losers. We shall have missed something, end quote. And in chapter 10, Lewis shifts his attention to second meanings in the Psalms. He says Christians finding double meaning in the psalm can come from three things, accident, prophecy, and or a fuller extension of knowledge. Lewis thinks that the psalmists and even the pagan bards talked about Christ without knowing about it. But if they were to learn about Christ, they would not have been surprised. Yeah, Lewis gives a good example of what he means by, quote, fuller extension. He asked if it would be an accident if a biologist, in order to illustrate a point in a lecture, invents an animal that would be well suited to a particular environment, but then the animal is discovered to actually exist. It would be a matter of random luck, Lewis says, but the result of knowledge and insight. Um, Of the pagan bards, Lewis says this, if Plato, starting from one example and from one Uh, and from his insight into nature uh, of goodness in the nature of the world, was led on to see the possibility of a perfect example, and thus to depict something extremely like the passion of the Christ. This happened not because he was lucky, but because he was wise. Mm. Addressing the skeptical response, that all these second meanings are the result of some archetype, or that these resemblances are derived from one from derived from other myths, Lewis says that there are two schools of thought. One, the devil has misled humanity from the beginning, and he has to make it his lies sound as much like the truth as possible as long as they lead people astray. Or, the second one, the resemblances are not to lead people astray, but to lead people to the truth on which everything depends, i.e. one must die to, to truly live. Uh, the resemblances are no more are no more accident than between the sun and its reflection of off of the water. In chapter eleven, Lewis gives us his own particular views on scripture regarding miracles. He says he would need other grounds by which to discount the Bible's historical narrative. For example, he believes Job isn't a historical account because it's not written that way. It's written in a divine as a divine story. Regarding biblical scholarship. He doesn't see anything that would shake his faith in Scripture. Some, uh, when some scholars say that the creation story in Genesis derived from, er- derived from earlier pagan myths, Lewis thinks that they were divinely inspired too, and the true complete story, insofar as God wants to reveal, coalesced into the Bible. Derivation doesn't mean reproduction. Mm. Lewis says the Bible, the Word of God, is not an encyclopedia, an encyclical, a pure science, or a a pure history textbook. The real value is steeping ourselves in the overall message. He says Christ's teachings are impeccable, but they do not come in the, quote, cut-and-dried, foolproof, systematic fashion we might have expected or desired, end quote. 
And in the final chapter, chapter 12, Lewis revisits second meanings, but looks into double meanings in the Psalms. He points out the motifs of the sufferer and the conquering and liberating king, the common, misin- or the common interpretation of these uh, was that the, the nation of Israel was the sufferer and the coming Messiah was the king. Jesus identified himself as both. Mm. In Psalm 110, Jesus identifies himself as above King David and also in the order of the priest Melchizedek. Lewis points out that this double meaning in Psalm 110, traditionally read on Christmas Day, helps the Jewish convert understand Christ's priestly nature, and it helps the Gentile convert see Jesus as king. Yeah. Lewis delves into other psalms and comparisons. He concludes the chapter comparing Psalm 84.10 and 2 Peter 3.8, which say, For one day in, in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Lewis says the one day must have a double meeting. Mm, yeah. The eternal, Lewis says, may meet us in a second, minute, or day. But what we have touched is not commiserable with a length of time. Thus, our hope is to emerge from the unilinear poverty of time, to be cured from that always aching wound, which mere succession and mutability inflict on us equally and when we are happy and when we are unhappy well moving on i guess to, to criticisms of of the work uh the book was well received by others at the time praising the the hallmark traits of lewis his lucidity and conversational tone and, and wit yeah and the only criticism was one of orientation we'll give you a positive and then a less positive review to illustrate One reviewer said this book may not tell the reader all he would like to know about the Psalms, but it will tell him a good deal he will not like to know about himself. (laughs) I love that. Uh, Another. uh, One feels that what he is saying, though always said beautifully and worth hearing, has only the most tenuous connection with the Psalms. A little more technical equipment could have been engaged, one feels, without impairing the refreshing sympathy of the author's approach i thought that review while i I kind of see his point i thought that review was maybe a little unfair yeah because lewis at the very beginning says it's one amateur to another and right and not all writings on the word have to be super technical or scholarships sure uh or, or or scholarly um, and especially like for this particular example, like what C.S. Lewis knows is poetry, right? So he's talking about poetry in su- such a way that when now we, we look at the Psalms, we, we can have a better understanding of them. Um, so he does put a little bit of onus on the reader to then take the tools they're given and, and then go to work on the Psalms. Today, the book is one of Lewis's lesser-known works and generally less favored with a 3.9 rating on Goodreads. But many reviews still praise Lewis for, for his, uh, his hallmarks we mentioned earlier. My, ref- my favorite review is by uh, Jay Wooten, which says, quote, It could almost be used as a devotional, though aimed at correcting assumptions, provoking attentiveness, and addressing discomfort rather than at inspiration or emotional uplift or guided meditation 
or whatever it is that most devotionals are trying to do. <laughs> like it also, that. yeah, it also sets forth some of Lewis's ideas on understanding the Bible, which are helpfully and clearly stated, even if the interpretive framework is one in which you disagree. The Psalms are complex, and guidance is helpful, doubly so when the guide is willing to own his bias and does not take for granted that the reader shares his perspective as so many religious writers do, end quote. Yeah, I think that perfectly captured how I thought about it. Like, as Lewis got older, or in the, in the 1950s when he was writing, like, The Last Battle or, or The Reflection on the Psalms, that's when his denominational... Uh, the way he like the way he leaned denominationally, that's when they started to come a lot more. This is certainly not mere Christianity, but like this reviewer said, like Lewis certainly owns it and says that others disagree with him, which is which is fine, and and he understands why they do. And um, so yeah, this that's this that review is certainly how I how I felt about it. Yeah. Um... It, yeah, I, I don't know. For this, again, it's important to then kind of bring it back to that idea that, like, we're peers in this. Mm-hmm. You know, like, when interpreting the Bible, there are some things that, there are some skills that, that we can bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and some skills that I think we can even learn from C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. But in the end, like, without the Holy Spirit, um it's just the trivia it's just the you know the the game we're about to play um and you know some of it historic some of it poetic but trivia nonetheless um whereas with the the holy spirit right this is the the light you know beneath our feet is it's the you know the the thing by which we live you know um so and we don't have any less of the Holy Spirit than um, C.S. Lewis did. So we, we can be confident when we're reading the scriptures, as we read it by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can, you know, you know, it's productive and fruitful and, and nourishing to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Andrew, before we, we play the game, were there any other thoughts or in, any itching quotes that you or quotes you were itching to, to share? Um, the one thing is just how in Romans, the Bible talks about how like, you know, all can, can see who God is through nature. Mm-hmm. And that's why no one has an excuse. Mm. Um, and that, you know, Lewis is really backing that up. Um, most won't like what they see, but you know, most can, you know, we can all see it through nature. So I just thought that that, that scripture in Romans really did back up what, what C.S. Lewis was saying. Yeah. And I guess speaking of nature, the, um, in chapter eight, Lewis was, when he was talking about nature and talking about how much God loves all of creation, uh, that, that felt like that was a, a good answer. I don't, for those who listened to the, our problem of pain episode. And I mentioned that I had a friend who asked if, if animals go to heaven and I sort of laughed, uh, at her and which I still feel bad about. Um, but she, her, her concern was that the, the, our faith and, and the Bible was too um, human centric. 
Mm. And and but then this chapter eight made me think like no like it's it's a concern for all of all of creation not just the humans um, and so if I ever encounter someone with that same sort of concern I will refer them and or quote to them or use the same sort of imagery and thoughts uh, as in chapter eight. Yeah, I I mean for that without getting too deep into it. Mm-hmm. Um, all nature will be redeemed, right? There will be a new heavens and a new earth, right? Mm-hmm. So that new earth implies a new nature. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't know if we can take that and, and say that all, like the purpose of heaven is is for the new earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't think we can, I, I do think salvation is human centric. Mm-hmm. Um, the redemption eternally speaking is creation centric Mm, interesting i haven't thought of a of a a difference like that between salvation and redemption yeah Yeah. and and sorry i have i have to ask before we go i do have to ask you this other question sure if what other book of the bible would you love to hear lewis's reflections on or a similar treatment as as the psalms Hmm. Well, this is where I, 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 I really love that he did the Psalms because of his just expert knowledge on poetry. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, but I do think him being Anglican and some of the beliefs that that come with that would make it really difficult to agree with him on on most of what he would say. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd probably want to pick like another poetic um book of the bible like oh you know what i got it like song of solomon like Hmm. another really poetic um you know thing that's that's meant to capture beauty which i think lewis captures well yeah and it's probably a good yeah that's a great segue into our next podcast episode which we'll do is on or big podcast episode we'll do on the four loves. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, so there's obviously not the same sort of treatment, but I, yeah. yeah, I guess for me, I've, I've been reading the uh, Ecclesiastes lately, which, uh-huh, there you uh, go. uh, if, so that, that is anyway, uh, I, I've been reading that lately. And so I would be interested in his thoughts on that, even though his grief observed, I, I think is, is his his book yeah. of Ecclesiastes? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, did, I hadn't thought of Song of Songs. I was thinking Proverbs or uh, or Job. Um, um, it's one of those like wisdom books. But yeah, the Song of Solomon's would would be an interesting one. And I think we'll we'll get something similar with Four Loves. Yeah, I, I think so too. I've I've already you know read ahead a little bit on that, and mm-hmm. um, I do do love what he has to say there. Well, awesome. With our remaining minutes, let's play a game, Andrew. Let's do it. So this will be Psalm Trivia. Oh, okay. So I'm going to ask you four questions about the Psalms, and you have to – we'll see if you can uh, get them right. Let's hope I can. Okay. So first question. In the opening verses of Psalm 42, the writer compares his soul to what animal? Is it A, bull, B? It's a deer. But go for there, it. Yeah, well, there you go. That was, that was B, deer. You got it. Yeah. 
There we go. Good job, Andrew. Yeah. Ding, ding, ding. Like uh, my uh, my soul pants for – like a deer pants for water, my soul pants for you or something to that effect. Exactly. Yeah, you got it. Hey, let's see if uh, you get this one. Uh, number two. Many people contributed to writing the songs, of which David wrote the most with 73. Who is attributed with writing the third most? Oh, okay. So I will I'll give you I will give you all of the um, the writers of the songs, and you have to tell me who wrote the third most. Okay. So is it Asaph, Solomon, Korah, Moses, Ethan, Heman, or uh, Anonymous? Well, anonymous seems unfair because theoretically you're, you're getting more than one person there. Um, Asaph wrote, I believe, the second most. So I'll go with anonymous for third. Wah, wah, wah. Uh, nope. What was it? A lot of oh, options you, there. Oh, you said Asaph? Well, Asaph wrote second most, didn't he? Correct. Sorry. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. You, sorry. Oh, you said went, orphans. No. You said the orphans wrote the third most. Okay. Sorry. They did not write the third most. It was Cora. Cora goes. What is it? David, Asaph, Cora, and then yeah, so Solomon. Ace, yeah. Asaph wrote twelve. Cora wrote eleven. Man. And then yeah. Solomon, Moses, Ethan, and Heman all wrote, wrote one. And then. Uh, there's 50 anonymous songs. Okay, third question. Psalm 1 states that the good man who doesn't listen to evil, doesn't do evil, and doesn't mock those who refrain from evil, but who delights in the law of the Lord, is like a blank planted by it's streams It's like a river by a stream. These are a tree planted by streams. Right? Correct. It's a tree. Yeah, a, a tree, yes. Nice. Yeah, not a river, a tree, not yes. A tree planted by the river, I believe, but it depends on the, the version you're reading. Yeah, this tree planted by streams of water. Yep, so ding, 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 ding. Okay, last question. The heads of what were broken in the water according to Psalm 7413, King James? Is it kings? It's... Okay, hon, I think I have it, but I, I'll take the multiple choice. Okay, is it... So I'll repeat the question. Okay. The heads of what were broken in the water according to Psalm 74.13? Is it kings, rams, dragons, or serpents? Mm, definitely not what I thought it was, so I'm glad I waited for the multiple choice. The heads of... And what? You said Psalm 73? 74.13. This is King James uh, uh, translation. If it's King James... I don't think it's kings. It was kings. And what was the second one? Rams. Rams. I don't think it's rams. It's so it's really between dragons and serpents. And I think this is a translation issue. I think in one translation, it'll say dragons and another one, it'll say serpents. Oh, I'm going to say dragons because that sounds like what Jimmy would say. Ding, 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 ding. Got it. It was Nailed dragons. It. Nailed it. Well, listener, thank you for joining us on our uh, this light of our, our journey. And we're getting close to the the end of our, I guess, uh, spiritual, I guess, mountain, if you will. Um, because, yeah, we divided up the books into spiritual, um, his spiritual works, his his novels or fiction, and, 
and then his academic. So we're getting right. close to the, the end of the, the spiritual ones. So crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, we I really enjoyed reading this with you, Thornton. Um, mm. Hope you enjoyed reading it, too. Um, and if you're listening, you know, and, and you're, you know, you read along with us and, you know, I hope you enjoyed it as well. I know I did. Uh, next time, I think we spoiled, spoiled this already, but next time we'll be going through the four loves. Yep. So that'll be our, our next big episode. And we'll probably, uh, we, I haven't started reading it yet, so it'll take me a minute. So that will probably release in, uh, in 2023. But I think between now and then we're going to do a few of his essays yeah. So be on the, the lookout for, for one of those. So, yeah. And yeah, I'm looking forward to the essays, looking forward to the four loves and, and uh, yeah, if you all want to connect with us, we're, we're on Twitter at Mir C.S. Lewis and, and maybe next time uh, my daughter will, will join us again as a third co-host. We'll, uh, we'll see you all next time. See you guys. <laughs>